Teresa Maris, who is an Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Vermont. She's affiliated with the Transdisciplinary Research Initiative in Food Systems there. Her research is on food, its intersection with migration studies, and an interest in the ways in which diet and food ways of Latinos, Latina immigrants change as a result of migration. She engages with theories and concepts of citizenship and borders, identity and food ways, and contemporary social movements. She's committed to applied community-based ethnographic methodologies and is currently studying food access and food security among Latino, Latina dairy workers in Vermont. She has a book called The Other Border, Sustaining Farm Workers in the Dairy Industry. And her title today is Life on the Other Border, Farm Workers and Food Justice in Vermont. So, Teresa. Thank you so much. Um, and thanks, everyone, for signing in today from all of your various corners of the world. I'm really happy to present some of the main findings from my book, which was published by the University of California Press with a slightly updated title at the last, seemingly the last editorial decision was about changing the title. And so I'm really excited to share some of the findings, which are largely about food security. But given um, your group's focus, I also want to tease out some of what I learned about the consequences for broader questions of dietary health, obesity, chronic disease that naturally stem out of some of the food access issues that I've now better understand for migrant farm workers here in the state of Vermont. Brand new day here in the United States, I woke up and seeing all of the changes that are docket about immigration to me kind of underscores the relevance of this topic, as well as some of the um, obvious questions and concerns that we have about essential workers um, during the pandemic. Um, these are the workers that I've been collaborating with and I'm connecting with now for about 10 years and um, some really relevant questions here, obviously. Um, but as you'll see, we are talking about a particular place in the United States, the state of Vermont, which is a really fascinating place to understand food systems and immigration. And what I'll do is really tie together some questions around border and border politics with, um, with my examination. We are the land of Bernie Sanders, who is now very meme-ready meme with his mittens from yesterday's inauguration. And that's a very particular uh, corner of the country that, that I'll be sharing with today. So again, the title of the book is Life on the Other Border, Farm Workers and Food Justice in Vermont. And I like to spend just a couple of minutes on this um, image because as I was having conversations about um, which image would grace the cover of the book, the press was very struck by this image, as was I. This was actually taken by a professional photographer that's done some really um, wonderful photojournalism work here in the state um, with migrant workers. And in this image, we see this young mother, you know, carefully and somewhat difficult, in a difficult way, caring for a young child as she is engaging in her in her livelihood, which is milking cows. So that child suspended in sort of webbing, you know, maybe about six feet away from a dairy cow is I think a really striking image and a, an important reminder that uh, workers in the food system are, are often viewed purely in terms of their economic contributions or the labor that they are engaging in. But it's really important that we as social scientists, as, as concerned people, understand the really um, complex and sometimes competing demands on their time. Uh, I want to talk just a briefly um, because people may or may not have understanding of, of the dairy industry in the United States and just how central immigrant workers are to it. So Vermont is, is a very small state. We only have 
have about 650,000 people. Our industry is pretty small in comparison to a number of other states um, in terms of the size of the dairies, um, the size of the herds that are being milked. But what we've seen are some really important changes in the workforce that is engaged in especially milking cows in every key dairy producing state. And so I'll talk a little bit about some of the distinguishing features between Vermont and some of these other states. But what we know is that nearly half of all workers on U.S. dairy farms are immigrants, and the vast majority of those individuals are from Mexico. Um, if we look at some of the data from the National Milk Producers Federation, which is not the most sort of progressive or leftist leaning organization, we know that if we were to lose those workers, our retail milk prices would probably double, and it would have an enormous economic impact on the United States economy, about $32 billion. So that is, I think, important just national context to take into consideration. And whether we're looking at places like Wisconsin or California or my home state of Colorado or Vermont, so many of the workers who are directly responsible for bringing this you know, key commodity onto our own plates are immigrant workers. And because of some particularities of um, um, U.S. visa policy and immigration policy, the vast majority of those immigrant workers are undocumented. We do have something in the United States called the H-2A visa program, which is a seasonal work permit, brings workers often from Mexico, um, Jamaica, um, Guatemala, a number of different nations into the U.S. to do seasonal agricultural work. But because that is a seasonal program and it's really emphasizing the return of workers to their home countries, dairy workers do not qualify for that because dairy work isn't seasonal, it's year round. And so there's this kind of interesting dilemma where even as we are growing increasingly dependent upon these laborers, they're sort of um, systematically excluded from some of the immigration protections that are available to other agricultural workers. I say that also to note that the H-2A program is not an unproblematic program. It has been proposed including by some of our representatives here in Vermont, to expand that H-2A program to include dairy. I'm really cautious about that because the H-2A program has been well-documented to be a place where worker abuse happens and where um, there's quite a bit of control over those employees because of that promise to return to their home nation. Um, so, you know, this story about dairy in the United States and the, and the role that immigrant workers play is something that we see in meatpacking. It's something that we see in, you know, seasonal agriculture cultural production. And in a, in a really interesting way, um, it's a really important story of Vermont as well. So Vermont is a very bucolic place. You know, there's a certain sort of mythical imagery of, of the state as this place of rolling green hills and red barns. You know, when I first moved here, uh, a lot of my friends were like, oh, you're going to the Bernie Sanders utopia. And in some ways, there's a truth to that, right? That there is a really important dimension of the state that is very progressive, that is really supportive of local small scale agriculture. But there's also this story of industrialized food here. And, and that's the story that I chose to really focus on for the purposes of my book. But if we look at the numbers, we're talking about a pretty small community. The numbers go back and forth. Again, if we're trying to get an estimate on mostly undocumented workers, the, the counts are difficult. But we know that there's probably 1,000 to 1,200 uh, farm workers from Latin America, again, mostly Mexico in our state. And 90% of those workers are undocumented. 
Uh, most of those workers are coming from southern Mexico, central Mexico. Um, a handful of workers are coming from Guatemala. But it's really important to also note that a number of these individuals are coming from agricultural places or agrarian backgrounds where, you know, subsistence agriculture has been a large, important part of their history, often coming from indigenous backgrounds where Spanish is maybe their second language, not their first language. And so, you know, when we're thinking about, you know, how these workers engage in the state, it's also a story of isolation. And it's a story of being very rurally located, which is um, very different from some of the previous work that I did in the city of Seattle. And it's really a mostly male workforce, um, mostly milking cows, working in the milking barn. Um, there have been steady numbers of women in the state, but only about 10% of that number is thought to be people identifying as women. And most of those women have come to join male partners, although um, we are seeing a number of women now working in, in dairy farms, including women like the one pictured on, on the cover. One of the things that I explore in this book, and one of the things that I draw upon a really important history of farm worker um, scholarship is that farm workers in our state, um, like farm workers in so many states, are really invisible. And the questions of citizenship, the questions of rural isolation are very key to that. Uh, geographer Don Mitchell, who has done some really amazing work on um, California agriculture, describes this as a normalized geography of farm worker invisibility, where the absence in our minds and our in our perceptions of farm workers has become very normalized, even as they are incredibly important to food security issues, um, to providing um, commodity agriculture, and to uh, making important contributions in, in other ways to the United States. And so when we think of Vermont, this image who was taken, which was taken by my uh, graduate research assistant, um, is really often what we think about these cows, this beautiful landscape. Um, we don't often think about the exploitation that is happening in this industrial agriculture or the, the human sort of consequences of this type of food production. And so in this book throughout um, the chapters, what I try to talk about is this interesting dilemma that farm workers face where they're often very invisible to the public eye. However, there's also this case and this important um, realization that farm workers, by virtue of the fact that they are people of color in an extraordinarily white place, as Spanish speakers in a predominantly English-speaking place, um, they often are hyper-visible when they're in public. And so we are a border state, um, and I'll talk a little bit about those dynamics, and especially during now the previous administration, which it's so wonderful for me to describe that as the previous administration, we saw a really... Um, increased demonization and dehumanization of immigrant bodies, and especially in border zones, that has tremendous impacts on people's well-being, including food access, which is my main question. So um, throughout the research, and I'll talk a little bit about some of the research methods that I used, which included both administering the U United States Department of Agriculture household food security survey, as well as doing semi-structured interviews um, with farm workers um, across the state. One term more than any came to describe their experience of living here, um, this term, which is encerrado. Despite speaking Spanish for now the majority of my life, I still cannot roll my R's, but that translates as confined or trapped or bounded and enclosed. This experience has been described by my colleague, Susanna McCandless, a geographer, as living in a carceral landscape where farm workers 
by virtue of their um, racialized identities, by virtue of their citizenship, feel very much uh, penned in on the farms where they live and work. This also has to do with labor patterns. Um, the fact that many are working 70 to 80 hours a week and there isn't a lot of time to get off the farm. But one of the things that I talk about throughout this book are the, the multiple borders that farm workers are experiencing on a daily basis. The, the memories and the trauma often of crossing the US-Mexico border, sometimes the Mexico-Guatemala border as well, living in this border zone uh, between the United States and Canada, and then the border around their farm. And so as I was exploring this question, and as I was exploring this field work that started in 2011, what started out as questions around food access quickly bumped up against topics of border surveillance and border enforcement. Um, and that is the result of or the resulting piece of why this is called life on the other border. Um, in the United States, most of our border conversations are really subsumed by the US-Mexico border, which for very important reasons, we have to think about that space. But throughout this book, what I posit is that this other border, the US-Canada border, is really important for us to consider, especially when we're looking at the experiences of undocumented workers in this area. So just to kind of geographically ground us a little bit, um, these are two maps that I often use um, and that appear in the book, just to give a sense of how far into our state the border zone kind of persists or you know, where border patrol have, has jurisdiction. So in the map on the left, um, this shows the 100 mile border zone, which is essentially where border patrol have the ability to stop people, ask questions. Um, this is on all sides of the United States, um, on all you know borders of the United States. And this is, if we look at Vermont, a pretty large percentage of our state, something like 90% of the state's residents live in that 100 mile border zone because of the fact um, that the few cities that we have are in that zone. That darker gray line on the left map is the 25 mile border zone, which is often called the primary operating domain for border patrol. This is the place where I did a, the majority of my research up in counties like Franklin County, Orleans County, um, parts of Grand Isle County. And these are the places where invariably, if you are traveling on the highways, the local state routes, you will see border patrol um, out and active. And this has tremendous consequences for farm workers who are living and working in this region. So kind of translating that idea of the 100 mile border zone over to this map, um, this is a map that's produced by my colleagues at UVM Extension um, in a program called Bridges to Health. And we can see that 100 mile zone you know, cutting through Rutland and Windsor counties, again, is the majority of, of the state. And on this map, what you can see is that each individual dot indicates one farm worker. I often say we could never produce this map or use this map in a place like California or even New York State, where you can really identify where individual workers are. Again, it's a small population. But what we see are the two main dairy producing counties, Addison and Franklin County, are entirely within that 100 mile zone. And Franklin County, which is a tremendously productive dairy region, is in that 25 mile zone. And so what I came to realize through this project is that um, as farm workers are living and working in the state of Vermont, that reality of being often undocumented and being in a place where Border Patrol and ICE is very active has tremendous consequences for how penned in they feel and how 
often nervous they feel about going to places like grocery stores or going to church or taking their children to school um, or picking up their children from school, going to doctor's appointments. And so this reality of being um, in this border zone is a really important um, factor that we have to take into consideration. And it's one that I I spent a lot of time thinking about um, in this book. So one of the things that we also have to think about is that this idea or this this reality that we see in Vermont's dairy industry is one that we see paralleled in a lot of other agricultural sectors, not only in the United States, but everywhere, where our food system has become very increasingly consolidated, very few people are in charge, and it's become very industrialized since you know, roughly the mid 20th century. So there's been a decrease in the in Vermont. Um, in the 1940s, we had about 11,000 dairies in the state. Those were mostly small family farms. As of the third quarter of 2019, um, there are about 675 dairies. The most recent numbers that I've seen are around 620, I believe. And so we've seen just this absolute gutting of the dairy industry where small family farms are going out of business. They're being bought up by larger consolidated firms. And despite that tremendous sort of decrease in the number of farms, we're making more milk as a state than we ever have before. You know, overproduction is a, is a very common story in dairy. Um, things like our consumer demand for Greek yogurt, which requires a lot more fluid milk, things like whey protein to go in smoothies are all sort of part of this overproduction uh, story. And it's really important to note that that <sighs> consolidation and industrialization of the dairy industry has really happened alongside the growing dependence upon immigrant workers and, and largely undocumented immigrant workers. So nearly 70% of the state's milk comes from dairies employing migrant laborers. If we look at New England more broadly, that's about 43%. And so again, with a a caution about overemphasizing the economic contributions, our industry, um, our agricultural industry is absolutely dependent upon this labor. Vermont is the most dependent state upon one agricultural commodity in the U.S. And that commodity is milk. We are also either the second least ethnically diverse state or the most least ethnically diverse state, um, meaning that it's a very white state. And so for farm workers who are, you know, people of color who are um, living and working in rural areas, all of these things kind of combine to, to paint a picture about inequitable food access, but also tremendous dependence on, on their labor. Before I got to UVM, University of Vermont, in 2011, there was some limited research that had been done on farm workers, often looking at physical health. And what we know, um, as we see in um, in food workers and farm workers across the United States and, and the globe, is that workers experience anxiety, tremendous physical pain, um, barriers in accessing healthcare, depression, all of these um you know, health-related consequences, stress that when we look at that combined with inequitable food access leaves a sort of a very large opening for diet-related disease and for, um, you know, what medical anthropologists often say as, or often term decreased life chances, right? Structural violence that results in embodied consequences of inequity. And when we look at farm worker food security, um, this is a question that I'm, I'm fascinated by. And I often say it's the question that keeps me up at night, where when we look at 
how likely it is for farm workers to be hungry, they're very likely to be hungry. Um, and there's been a number of research projects, you know, in nutrition and, and applied anthropology, nutritional anthropology, public health that look at farm worker food security. And what we know is that farm workers are more likely to go hungry than the general population. And that to me is just, um, I think a tremendous sign about the contradictions, the violent contradictions that are built into our food system where those who are producing food often cooking food, driving food around, are often more likely to be hungry than the general population. Um, but I'm an anthropologist for a reason. Uh, I like stories, um, probably as much, if not more, than I like numbers. And so I wanted to spend just a second talking about this image, which is a picture taken again by a research assistant um, in a farm worker home, um, a mobile home. And those green items on the floor are tomatillos, which um, are uh, not related to tomatoes. They're actually more closely related to gooseberries, but they're often called husk tomatoes. Um, they're uh, hard sort of green fruits, wrapped in a husk, tremendously important in Mexican cuisine for making salsa. And this is the result of one farm worker growing tomatillos near um, the dairy farm where he was living and working. What we see here to me is an example of food security. He knows that for probably the next three to four months that he's going to have tomatillos. Um, tomatillos store really well um, without any additional processing. You can freeze them, but you don't have to. Um, and so his knowledge, his you know, intensive sort of agricultural knowledge of this product results in the fact that he can store these and have reliable access to this food as long as he wants it and as long as they are good. To me, this is a really important dimension of food security that I think we need to take into account that strict sort of quantitative measures don't necessarily um, allow us to think about. And for that reason, in this project, I paired both quantitative research with qualitative research, you know, using this mixed methods approach that I think is growing increasingly um, imperative in food systems research. So when we look at the studies on farm worker food security that have been done in the United States, um, often in places like California, the U.S.-Mexico border region, um, places that have more seasonal workers, what we know is that uh, Latino farm workers often experience food insecurity at very high rates. Um, the U.S. food security rate is likely even more increased because of the pandemic. Um, we see tremendous food insecurity um, right now. But what we know is that farm workers in general are often three to four times more likely to be food insecure than the national average. What this means is anywhere from roughly 45 to 60 percent of farm workers are not getting enough food. And so seeing that figure, I was really um, intrigued about how farm workers in our state were faring. And this was the project that I started right after being hired as an assistant professor um, in the Department of Anthropology. So there was no previous data. Um, there were no previous data about farm workers in the state or about New England um, more generally when we look at food security issues. And so I set out to understand, well, how are dairy workers faring, given what we know about the broader conditions that are facing farm workers? in the United States and about the particular conditions that they are uh, facing here in Vermont. I'll also talk briefly about a project that I helped direct called Huertas, which is a applied food security project connected with our university extension efforts, which is responding to the realities that we see about farm workers having challenges getting food, but especially challenges in getting fresh foods that are really conducive to health. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about that program and some of the images that I show. We'll, we'll talk about some of the gardens that we helped to plant. So I did um, quantitative research using the United States Department of Agriculture, the USDA Household Food Security Survey module. And this is the survey that is primarily used in the United States to understand how likely a 
or how food insecure or secure a household is. All of our national data, the annual um, report that comes out of the USDA Economic Research Service uses the same survey. It's been translated into Spanish and a number of other languages. And so because it's the same method that has been used in all of those other food security surveys, I felt, well, I want to compare apples to apples, like milk to milk, I guess, um, and see how farm workers are faring in our state. So I oversampled women, um, given what we know about the particular role that women play in ensuring food access and food security for their households. And I interviewed or I surveyed about 10% of farm workers living in the state. Um, I did these surveys at um, mobile consulate visits. The Mexican consulate visits typically, although not this past year, uh, twice a year. I did this in the waiting room of a clinic that serves uh, farm workers primarily. I did this in uh, mobile clinics coordinated by Dartmouth-Hitchcock um, Medical Center, also with gardeners involved with our project. And what we see is that farm workers in our state using this data are not as food insecure as I anticipated and as we see in other communities, only about 18% of farm workers are classified as food insecure. So I looked at this data and I you know, tried to understand these data and I couldn't sort of shake the other um, impressions and the other stories that were being shared with me by farm workers um, completing the survey. And that was largely on paper, they don't look like they're food insecure. Using what now I see as a very flawed instrument, they don't get categorized as food insecure because this survey is not set up to adequately understand the experiences of migrant families or of families who are facing a variety of challenges in getting food. And so briefly, you know, what I also saw is that the geographic sort of dimensions of the border were playing out, you know, higher rates, negligibly higher, not statistically significant higher, but we saw slightly higher rates of food insecurity in that border zone where people are really, really fearful of leaving their homes. But what I want to share is that I think when we look at these data and the data you know, are, are talked a lot about um, primarily in um, the first few chapters of the book is that why and how food or farm workers in the state of Vermont don't have equitable access to food are very complex and are not necessarily captured in that really kind of, in my mind, narrow um, understanding of what food security means. And so if you look at the USDA tool, what you'll see is that the questions are primarily about money. It's about do you have enough money for a healthy, varied diet? Do you have enough money to purchase food for your children? Do you have enough money for these things? Which of course, access to money and access to financial capital is an important proxy for food access and food security, but it's not the only thing. So after I would complete these surveys, invariably, I would say about 80 to 90% of individuals would say, well, okay, Teresa, I have the money to buy food, but I am terrified of going to the grocery store because I'm undocumented, or I have the money to purchase food, but if I go to the grocery store with my partner, we don't speak in Spanish because we don't want someone to call border patrol on us. Or I have the money for food, but when I go to the grocery store, I don't find the foods that are meaningful to me. You know, the foods that are really conducive to my own cuisine, my own diet, my own preferences. And so why farm workers are food insecure, which I argue they are food insecure, despite the quantitative data, uh, maybe saying otherwise, is that people are very rurally isolated. There is a tremendous lack of mobility. There's a lot of dependency upon third parties to access food. And Vermont, um, if you've ever been here or New England, especially rural New England, is not the bastion. It is not the Mecca of Mexican food. And that has been a severely depressing part of my reality living in the state. And so 
one of the things that we see is that um, in some associated data that my colleague at UVM Extension has collected, something like 96% of farm workers that she surveyed are not doing their own grocery shopping. They are sending lists with the volunteers or with their managers to purchase foods for them. So we can imagine what would our diets look like if someone else was doing our shopping for us? What kinds of um, inaccuracies would maybe result in the food that we're getting if there's language barriers about the foods that we're wanting. There are important policy changes that have been made in Vermont where now everyone, regardless of citizenship status, can access driver's permission cards to drive, but that's a state level policy um, that does not impact the ability of border patrol or ICE to pick up people as they're driving. And so all of these things, right, the broader pillars of food security, which are widely talked about in the literature, are really important to consider when we look how food insecure farm workers are rather than that strict economic reality. There's also some really important um, considerations about sort of scale and scope, right? And that this model is, um, it's a USDA household food security survey. So when I did these surveys, a lot of questions would come up of, are you talking about my household here in the United States where I'm living with maybe three other men from you know various states of Mexico? Or are you talking about the household that I'm primarily supporting back in Mexico with the remittances that I'm sending home? Um, so even the scale of analysis is really not well suited between this survey module and transnational families who have families that they're supporting sometimes on both sides of the border. It also, I think, points to a more fundamental, and I, say, I, I would argue sort of epistemological question, which is that when we understand food insecurity, when we study food insecurity, we often are trying to only understand the absence, right? The challenges, the barriers. We don't look at equally how are people being resilient and creative and inventive and what are they doing in terms of gardening and ordering food over delivery services or ordering foods even from home in Mexico to deal with these um, inequities. And that's what I'm as if probably not more interested in is what are people doing to get by in this in the face of these inequalities. So one of the projects that I've done, and this will, is what I'll spend the rest of my time thinking about, is a project called Huertas, which is a project that started before I actually arrived at the University of Vermont, but one that has become about a lot more formalized um, through some of my involvement, which is a project that works with dairy farm workers to build and maintain kitchen gardens at the farms where they're living and working, especially in an effort to increase their access to fresh and culturally familiar foods in the summer months. And as I'll talk about our summer months in Vermont, as I'm looking out to several inches of snow are pretty short, um, but I think it's an important project to address some of these concerns. But I want to uh, kind of pause on this. Um, so this uh, comes from a different project that I was involved with, a, a graphic novel, uh, ethnographic cartooning project, where we worked with farm workers to, and artists to create mini graphic novels about their experiences living in the, in the state. And this was taken from a, a comic or a graphic novel called My, My Heart is Split in Two, which tells the story of a woman who has two children born and being raised in the United States and two children born and being cared for in Mexico. She came from a very indigenous background. Um, she came from a region where they grow coffee. Her family um, has always grown coffee. And what she describes in the broader story is that even though she was poor, incredibly poor in Mexico in the state of Chiapas, she could go to the store when she had money. She had the freedom of going on a daily basis, which was much more sort of a culturally familiar way of doing shopping. And she describes here, I can't just go to the store when I want, 
right? I have to cook with what I have, ending up in that sort of final sentence. The problem is that we cannot leave. So despite the fact that, you know, she actually did have a lot of social networks, she had a number of people that she knew in the community. She actually had taught cooking classes at our local food cooperative. She felt incredibly isolated and a great amount of fear when she left her home. And that has a tremendous importance, not only for her food access, but how important the garden came to play, um, the important role that the garden came to play in her life. So I just want to share some images and and share just a few of the stories that I that I captured in a much more qualitative way. And I feel like this more ethnographic work paints a much more realistic per picture of what farm workers in our state are, are experiencing. So this first garden, a um, couple of images, uh, and these are all pseudonyms, is the Garden of Tomas, who was a farm worker who had spent 40 years of his 64 years on earth living and working in the United States. Uh, prior to 9-11, he went back and forth between the U.S. and Mexico much more frequently, um, often on an annual basis. What we've seen since 9-11 is a tightening of the border, um, much more infrequent crossings for individuals who are living and working in the United States. And what we saw in his garden um, that we helped to sort of create and support was just this tremendous agency around food and this tremendous concern about his health and about how you know, growing these foods that have deep cultural resonance for him were absolutely essential for him to feel sort of a semblance of belonging, a semblance of well-being in the state. Um, and this is a man who was uh, working often 65 hours a week on, on a dairy farm, and he was cultivating, I would say, close to an acre around the farm where he lived and worked. He had seven separate gardens that he would cultivate and, and share this food with everyone that he knew. Here he is harvesting tomatillos um, in my conversations with him, which we did a number of interviews um, in our project with him. What I just came to understand is that his understanding of you know, what's often called permacultural techniques, which are um, often colonizing techniques, are so representative in how he understood plants, right? He knew about companion planting. He had always engaged in companion planting. He wanted to plant things to attract pollinators. And we see this sort of what Devin Pena often talks about with traditional ecological knowledge, so richly um, sort of exemplified in his relationship to these gardens. Again, um, he was living with two other men in a mobile home. And what he would often do is really sort of use this food as a building as a way to build connections with his with his housemates, with volunteers for our project, with academic researchers that would often drive away with trunks full of food. And I think it's important that, you know, on paper, he was actually classified as food insecure. But when we look at his relationship to these gardens and to the food that sort of resulted from these gardens, he had a greater degree of food security and an agency than was really captured. Um, this woman actually comes from the same village as Tomas, this woman, Lourdes. Um, she has two U.S.-born children. Um, and I, I should note that when I do this presentation, um, when I show images, I, I carefully choose people who have returned home to Mexico, especially a decision that I've made um, during the previous presidential administration, just out of uh, concern. But these pictures have all been taken with people's full permission and are shared as a, as a way of talking about our project. Uh, what I noticed in, in women's experiences with this project is there tremendous concern about 
sharing foods with their children, sharing foods that have deep cultural resonance like chile rellenos, which um, are an important part of Lourdes's diet, of her cultural identity, and having the agency to go out and pick those foods rather than waiting for groceries to be delivered every 15 days was not just about food security, but it's, it's about food sovereignty and about autonomy around one's food. And I think as anthropologists, um, you know, those of us anthropologists in the room, we understand just how important that connection to food and foodways can be for one's identity and well-being. That child became this child over the years that I did ethnography, completely fearless around large Holstein cows. What I also have seen through this project is are ways that children can really connect in with not just their cultural familiar diets, but they can also, you know, just learn so much more about their parents and about their parents' histories when they are so far removed often from their extended family. And so these gardens have become just really important places where farm workers are connecting in with some of these stories, these identities, these foods. Um, Elena here, uh, a woman from Chiapas, is demonstrating here how she, um, if she wants this beautiful head of cauliflower, she really carefully pulls together the leaves and ties them together to protect it from the sun and from pests, which is a technique that she brought with her from her agricultural background in Chiapas. And as we might anticipate, those of us who are gardeners, um, gardens, of course, are important for food, but they serve so many other purposes, right? For mental health, for celebration, for spending time with family. We have um, had a number of birthday parties in these gardens that we helped to construct. Um, they have had a number of pinatas broken over them. And in terms of experiential learning and, and development for children, they serve a really important purpose as well. And I want to just kind of end with the idea that, you know, we often understand, you know, in the United States that a number of our uh, farm workers are coming from agricultural backgrounds. And sometimes we make an assumption that they know, what, you know, how to grow food and that, you know, there's a natural fit. For Wama, she actually, um, despite coming from a pretty rural area and from a region that was really known for um, growing coffee, she had this really, she'd been uh, separated from subsistence, ag subsistence agriculture um, right around the time that NAFTA that was passed, um, her ability, her family's ability to grow corn and to subsist on the agriculture was really devastated. And so she actually came to the United States without a whole lot of understanding about subsistence agriculture or small scale growing. So she was really interested in growing flowers at first. But as we saw over the many years that she was involved with this project prior to returning to Mexico, growing food became much more important to her than growing flowers or equally as important to her than growing flowers. So I want to emphasize that because um, we often, I think, look at farm workers as this sort of homogenous community, but there's so much tremendous diversity in experience and diversity in cultural background that um, we as social scientists really want to pay attention to. So I'm going to end there because I think I'm at my time and want to open it up to questions from people about either the research, about the applied work that we're doing. I tried to fit a lot into 40 minutes, so we have plenty of time to go, go into some more detail here. 